And um, let me tell you what we're going to do. But Kidmo, you can go. And there they go. They're gone. I'm super excited about Journey Camp uh, this year. We've got a bunch of kids going to go. And I'm really excited. Um, I'm always nervous to say something is changing for the better. You ever, you know, you ever do that? You're like, I think things are, are kind of improving. And then you're like, yeah, but I don't want to say that because then I'll make sure that they don't. But um, it feels like life is starting to return a little bit to normal. And it is so good to see you here and have these children involved and that we're taking them back to camp. And that's so mean you're going to come with us. Um, I'm excited about the fives on the fifth. And uh, that's going to be good. I don't know what we're doing for breakfast foods, but... Um, I'm super excited about that. And for those in our youth ministry, as we kind of relaunch and rebuild over these next few months, um, just be encouraged. We are looking at ways for them. If We're not returning to Fuge this year, but we are looking for some opportunities for them to be a part and to go out and to have some time together as well. Um, but we're still talking about that, and we'll figure that out and let you know as well. Uh, so today is the next to the last week of our study of the Sermon on the Mount. This is our 20th week in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have missed any of it, I hope you'll go back and you can pick back up any of the pieces you have missed. Uh, you can find that online on our website. You can find that on iTunes. Um, and I would just encourage you, it's, it's not that it's, the sermons are so good. Right? I mean, they are pretty good. I think. I mean, I think they are. I don't know if anybody else does, but um, th- yeah, thank you for that self pat on the back and then for affirming that. That was super unhealthy. I'm even more unhealthy than I was before, but it did feel good for a moment. So thank you for that. But um, so the teachings of Jesus are not meant to be something you just memorize. They're not something that we learn and we hear, and I got that one, or I understand the story, I've got the plot line, and now that's it, that's all, what can we move on to next? Uh, They're meant to be something that we engage with over and over and over and over and over again. Now, I um, I will give you kind of an idea of where I want us to go today, because uh, what we, the portion that we are in is what I consider some of the scariest verses of scripture in all of the Bible. Uh, And I'll share why I think that is in a minute. I also think that they are very much often misunderstood, and some of that fear is warranted, but a lot of that fear is not. Uh, And so I want us to kind of unravel a few things. I want to reframe maybe some of your understandings of this passage that you have heard in the past, um, and recognize that this audience that Jesus is giving this sermon to, they didn't do this over 20, 21 weeks. They got it all at one time. And they didn't come with an empty slate. They came with a slate full of the Scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. They had studied the Old Testament. They heard the Old Testament daily. Uh, They knew the Scriptures. And so Jesus isn't trying to say, okay, forget everything else in the Bible. This is what you want to know. Oh, Jesus is coming to an audience that knew everything else in the Bible, in the Old Testament at least, and he is helping them to understand what it really meant. And it, at times it's easy to come into this and say, you know, the only part of the Bible that I really want to study are the words of Jesus. And I, I would say Jesus, if he were standing here, would say, 
that you cannot understand what I'm saying if you only study my words. You cannot understand that. You have to understand everything else because much of Jesus' teaching and a lot of the Sermon on the Mount is him contextualizing misunderstandings of what it meant uh, to know God and to follow him. And so as we come to this, uh, the what I consider to be the most pivotal parables in all of Scripture are the ones that Jimmy just read. And it's not because they tell us what to do. They are the most pivotal parables because they tell us how we are to engage with God. And he says, this is, this is not something you just take and add into your life. Like you, you either have found that this thing is the, the, a true pearl, a true prize, a true treasure, that it really, there is no other treasure in your life that can rival this one. And that is an incredibly important parable because it teaches us, and especially in a society and a culture that were very religious, um, they may or may not actually live it out, but they knew what they were supposed to live out. And then we also know that Jesus, throughout his ministry, um, is talking about a group of people who knew Scripture more than anyone else and who regularly missed the point. And instead of using... Um, the story of the Old Testament to inspire and to help and to bring healing and freedom to people used it just to enslave and to keep them stuck. Uh, and so as we read through this, we recognize that uh, this thing that Jesus is talking about, this isn't an important thing. Like, this is the important thing. And so let's just jump in, and we're going to actually backtrack, and I'm not going to recover what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, but I want to backtrack to... to we're at Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. By the way, next week is our last week in this. Um, and then we're going to jump to the Old Testament for a while. And we're going to go through, we went through Genesis 1 through 11 about a year ago. We're going to pick up in Genesis 12 and we're going to go through the end. And I, we're doing that for two reasons. And that will start in two weeks. But we're doing that for two reasons. One is we need to understand this part of the story because all of the rest of the Old Testament is built on the foundation of what happens in, in Genesis 12 to the end of the chapter. And so I want us to go through and I want us to see the foundation for all that God has done throughout the Old Testament and then what Jesus is fulfilling in the New. But I also want you to see something else because this section of Scripture is sometimes called the patriarchs, uh, these great men of renown, men of faith. And what we have a tendency to do with people like Abraham or Jacob or you know many of the patriarchs is we have a tendency to put them on a pedestal and go, man, they just did it all right. I don't know about you, I don't know anybody that did it all right. Uh, Jesus did it all right, but outside of him, that's it. And Abraham did not do it all right, and Jacob did not do it all right. And we're going to talk about what, what was going on with Esau, and why in the world was God okay with what was going on there, and why in the world would God encourage child sacrifice? Is that Was God really encouraging child sacrifice? So we're going to go through some things that we tend to just ignore because we've heard the story so many times, we're going to ask some harder questions, and we're going to see that the story of these people of faith was not necessarily about their faithfulness but God's faithfulness to them. And if you're a person who struggles in your faith or you struggle to feel like you do things the right way or that God's okay with you, then this, the, the, the next few, actually it's going to be months because it's going to take us a while to get through it. The next few months, you're going to, I hope, find that God's faithfulness to you is not dependent on you living a perfect life, which is, it gives me a lot of hope 
And I hope that that will give you a lot of hope. So we're going to pick that up in two weeks. Um, It's really important. We're going to see a lot of themes. We're going to to see themes of generational sin. We're going to see things of, you know, son completely continued the sins of the father. We're going to also see where son recognized the sins of the father and shifted and created a different legacy for their family. But through it all, we're going to see God's faithfulness to us. And I think that's an important message for us all to have. So that's going to start in two weeks. I want to back up today to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, and because our primary passage for today is a continuation of this thought. It is not in and of itself separate. Really, the whole Sermon on the Mount is a continuation of, of a similar thought, all about the kingdom. But verse 15 of Matthew chapter 7 says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And then we enter into today's passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know about you. Uh, Deidre and I grew up in a somewhat similar environment. Uh, we both grew up going to church. She grew up in a, in a much more um, conservative slash kind of literalist slash kind of legalistic structure than I did, but I was pretty, I, like I wasn't far from that. And we can both remember um, every time we were kids and we went to on a youth retreat or to a youth camp or we had a revival at the church, like we got saved all the time. I don't know, did anybody else do that? Did you get saved like every time somebody questioned whether you were really saved? And um, I, had a, I had a pastor growing up that did a, a revival at her church. And he, it was such a popular saying. They would say something to the effect of, um, if you're only 99% sure that you are saved today, you are somebody else. Oh, y'all don't know that. I thought everybody heard it. So if you are... Only 99% sure that you are saved today. You are 100% lost. I, we heard that all the time. Like all, I, You all never heard that? You all are a blessed people. I'm going to tell you that right now. Because when you're about 12 years old and they tell you that, you're not 99% sure about anything, right? You don't, you're not even 99% sure of your own name sometimes. And so, like, we would get saved regularly. Deidre, she, she talks about her, like, she got saved every revival because she just wanted to be sure. And it's kind of funny when we tell the story, but when you're in that moment and you're in that system, it's not really funny. It's incredibly frightening. Because the emphasis in that type of gospel presentation is not on Jesus. The emphasis of that gospel presentation is on hell. And so if we facilitate this constant fear of hell in people, it's, it's kind of like saying, you know, um, if you, uh, I don't know who, like in, those who are married in the room or engaged in the room, I don't know who proposed to who. I'm not going to assume um, who proposed to who. 
But it would be kind of like the proposal going something like this. All right. So I'm not very good. But if you don't marry me, you're probably going to end up with someone way worse. Like that is not a real inspiring proposal, is it? And some of you may have felt that way. Let's be honest. I'm not, I don't want you to admit it if you felt like, well, I mean, I could do worse. I mean, I hope that's not how you entered into that relationship. But it, it's kind of like entering into a relationship with Jesus and we're like, you know, like you're okay, but the alternative's just worse. So I'll pick you. It's not very exciting, is it? And many times we don't mean to do this. But we have heard this story of Jesus so many times, and we have pushed this narrative of heaven over hell so many times, we actually miss the very thing that makes it all beautiful in an attempt to avoid what we fear most, which we don't fully understand hell. We just know it's going to be really, really bad. And so that makes uh, its way into our theology in many ways. Um, That's one of the reasons we have a tendency to focus on sin rather than God's grace, Um, It's one of the reasons that when we read Jesus' words, we try to create checklists. I'm going to make sure I do this, and I want to make sure I do that, and I make sure I don't mess up anything because I don't know what hell is. I just know it's pretty bad. I don't want to be there, and hell's supposed to be pretty awesome, and that's where I want to go. So as we kind of come to this passage, for me early on, this passage was incredibly frightening. Like you, you go to church, you serve, you do all these things, you know, and, and Jesus is saying like, you're going to walk up in, in front of me and I'm going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. I, for me, that is like, that's one of the most scary, scariest pieces of Scripture that I, I read in all of the Bible. Now, I'm not the only one who, who that affects that way. Um, in fact, if we go back and we look at Paul, Paul, this is where Paul is. And this is one of the things I love about Paul sometimes we read Paul like we read Abraham and we think everything Paul did was perfect. Everything was inspired. You know, Paul just, he was like the perfect, it's like Jesus and, you know, probably Moses before Paul, maybe even Abraham, but then Paul's right there. But Paul struggled with this reality himself. Like, I'm trying to figure this out. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, um, do you not know that in a race all the runners win, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He's talking about that pearl of great price, the treasure buried in a field. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not back box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under crow under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul regularly had this moment where he's like, I ain't pretty sure about this, but I am going to be incredibly intentional because I don't want to get through this life and having said all this and done all this and missed it myself. And Jesus is saying, he's probably thinking of these words in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying, some of you are going to go through all this religious activity and you're going to come to me and, and it will not have been real. I think one of the problems um, that we've developed in our checklist spirituality, in which there's a checklist and if you don't check all the boxes, you're out. One of the problems with that is we forget one of the most incredible storylines we see throughout the New Testament, and that is the grace, graciousness of Jesus. 
He is full of grace and mercy everywhere he goes. He, he confronts a woman who's caught in adultery, and he, he stems the tide, the group, away from punishing her, and he says to her, I'm not here to punish you either. And yet we read these words thinking, man, Jesus is harsh. Jesus is ready to pounce. Jesus is ready to kick us out. Like, I was doing really good up until this week, and then I had a bad week, and I'm pretty sure I'm out now. I really don't think Jesus ever intended for any of his followers to live life that way. I don't think he intended for us to take the power of this gospel of of the kingdom and of love and of mercy, and he meant for us to nail it down into a legal contract and you either sign it or we're going to take you to court because you didn't fulfill all the pieces. It's another reason we're going through Genesis 12 through the end of the book because they regularly didn't keep their part and yet God continually used them and was gracious to them. So how do we understand this? I do think in all things, there is just tension in life. There's a, a move for us to avoid all tension in life. Like we don't want tension. We don't want stress. We want things to fit in their, their little box. We want things to go the way they're supposed to go. We want that to happen in our faith as well as at work and at home, and just in our own life of who we are as individuals. We just we want everything to work out just the way they are supposed to work out. But God has built within us this incredible tension. You know, we talked about marriage, and we talked about, um, you know, when, when, when is it okay to divorce or not okay to divorce? We talked about that. There's this tension when we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, where the relationship between husband and wife is one not in just two people who are united and have the exact same mindset and the exact same way of living life and the exact same way of doing things. But instead, if we go and we dive down into to the language of what is being said, um, there is this picture of marriage in which it's like two boards leaning against each other in opposition to one another. If you've ever felt in opposition to your spouse, well, don't just join the club. Recognize that's the way the club was supposed to work. There's supposed to be tension. Now, there are times we take tension to, to epic levels, and that's not what God intended. But there is meant to be this tension between things. There's a tension between faith and working out that faith. There's a tension in loving and holding accountable. There's a tension in following Jesus and just living life, enjoying the benefits of what God has done in this world. There's tension in these places. Uh, I was at the gym this week, and usually um, the, one of the TVs in the locker room is normally on this, the Science Channel. You know, and so I, you know, I kind of walk in, and I'm a Science Channel junkie. I don't know about you. They say some of the most uninteresting things, but the way they say them, I'm hooked, and I'm like, I need to go work out, but I gotta, I gotta see how this resolves. Is Pluto a planet or not? I gotta know, you know. Like my life doesn't depend on whether Pluto's a planet or not, but I'm, but, but they, it's such a compelling story. I gotta figure it out because my life won't be complete unless I know because Pluto's a planet. I mean, that's how I grew up. And if you're, anyways, all right. So you get my point. Science Channel pulls me in, and they were talking about. Um, this beautiful galaxy in which we live and the power of the stars that are really the fuel for life. 
And I had never heard this, although it makes a whole lot of sense. It talked about the tension that is created in a star for it to even exist. There, it is an, In and of itself, it is a, a self-contained explosion that is constantly exploding, and yet they have created enough mass that now there is a large enough gravitational field around the star that holds the explosion in so that we have this constantly burning sun that if that gravitational field wasn't there, it would just, boom, explode and be gone. But the gravitational field that is created just by its own mass creates a tension that allows us to have our sun and allows every other system to have their star. And without those systems, there is no life. God has built tension not just into the fabric of our relationships. God has built tension into the fabric of our universe. And as we come to this and we, we read through, what about this coming to Jesus and He's going to tell us maybe you're in and maybe you're not? The thing that makes it so difficult is it sounds like the people Jesus is describing that aren't in should be in. Like they're doing the right things and they're saying the right things and they're showing up to the right things and they're still out. Which is a real problem in a culture that really celebrates lists of things to do. So I do want us to unravel that for just a minute, but not yet. As we come to this, we understand this bigger context of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying there are perils to following him. And it, it is not just that he's going to lead you to perils. It's the fact that following him comes with its own perils. And so two weeks ago, we talked about these false teachers and the reality that there are people that will be out there and they will just have a shade of truth but they will add on top of that shade of truth a whole lot of untruth, and it'll really mess you up. It can really mess you up. So you need to be careful, and you need to watch their fruit. And the reality is when we come to passages like this, this only matters whether Jesus is going to say you're in or you're out. They only matter if this stuff is true. If this is just an exercise in human relationships, if this is just an exercise in a religious way of doing life or a religious way of thinking, Jesus' words here matter not. If we're not going to stand before him and he is not some gatekeeper as to whether or not we're going to be with him forever, then none of what he says here matters. And one of the things we have to come to an agreement when we read passages like this and we read these words of Jesus is that Jesus believed this was all absolutely true. Do we believe this is all absolutely true? I mean, there's a, there are seasons we go through. You know, a lot of us got saved because we heard a lot about hell and it was a really bad place and heaven sounded really good. And you know what? It's on down the road. I can do a few things to make sure I get my you know, ultimate vacation at the end of this life. I can do that. But you can't stay there. Even if that is, and not every, that's not everybody's story, but that is your story. You, you, you can't stay there. There was certainly a portion for me when I became a Christian. I was like, God, hell sounds bad. But I remember a very deliberate decision that I made that I, I am probably going to live a while, at least till I'm 35. I'm a little older than that now. But I'll at least live till I'm 35. And as long as, you know, I don't know. I had, at that moment, had not known anyone who had died before 35. So I thought, I have at least till I'm 35 to get this stuff together. And, you know, so I could kind of do what I want until then. And I did. 
And so I've shared my testimony here before, and I don't have time to go into all of my testimony now, but there came a time when I recognized this thing about Christianity, like, it's actually, it's really good because life without it is really rough and hard. So I actually got baptized when I was eight, but I wasn't really saved till I was 15. I got baptized because I didn't want to go to hell and because they had crackers and juice in church for people who had been baptized every now and again and I wanted to do that and all my friends were doing it, so why not I do it as well? I grew up in church, so I knew all the answers, so I knew what I was supposed to say and so I said the things I was supposed to say and I got baptized and it was really great, but there was a period of time from that moment until I was about 15 years old in which I was like, ah, there's... I don't know what heaven's going to be like, but I know how... I know how what you have to do to survive in middle school. You know, can I get an amen on that? You gotta make friends. You gotta make the right friends. You gotta have a posse. You gotta have a group of people that will welcome you in because, like, middle school's a jungle. And along the way, finding that group for me meant making lots of sacrifices and the things that I had been taught were good. And it just, it just got so messy, not in the fact that I didn't have friends. It got messy in the fact that I couldn't look at myself in a mirror. And so it was when I was 15 that I made the decision, I, I need this for real. And for me, it was real. In fact, it was at a Christian camp, and I kind of wandered off to myself and um, just had had my own time with Jesus, and I, as I've shared before, my prayer, I began my prayer in that moment simply saying, and no joke, this is no joke, I, I started my prayer with God, this is Mark, I don't know if you remember me, that's how I felt, it was an honest prayer, that's how I felt, I felt like I was ultimately forgettable, well everybody feels like I think when you're a teenager you're ultimately forgettable, but I felt like I was ultimately forgettable and there was nothing in my life that God would be interested in me in that moment. And so I was coming in that moment to plead and beg and say, I can't do it this way. I didn't do much pleading and begging. I mean, I I had a pretty hefty moment of repentance. Don't get me wrong. But I found in that moment this just undescribable moment where it was as if Jesus was sitting next to me. And for those of you who grew up in more charismatic experiences, it was not I, like Jesus wasn't sitting there. But, but it was as if he was. It was such a palpable, powerful moment for me. I never forgot it. So that the next day, the adults in our group were like, what, what happened to you last night? Because I didn't tell anybody. I knew how camp worked. Everybody goes, big worship number at the end. Everybody's crying. Everybody's going forward. Everybody's raising their hands and they're taking pictures and writing all the names down to give to their youth pastor so you can follow up and tell their parents they got saved at camp. I knew the drill. And that's, that's why when we started doing Fuge Camp here, I was like, listen, it is important to me <laughs> that we don't buy into that. I mean, if a person gets saved at the last number on the last night of camp, then praise the Lord. But, but we're not pushing that. We're not pushing that. Because it's either real or it's not. Then too many times those things aren't real. For me, it was a, it was a real moment. I remember them saying, you, you, what, what happened to you? And so I told them. From that moment to today, there are many moments that I think, God, I must embarrass you all the time. Y'all ever have those moments? 
I just must embarrass you all the time. And yet you just are so good. You're just so good. Today, as I was, you know, I got up this morning, I was all ready to go last night, but this morning I woke up just tired. Just, I just want to sit. I really, all I want to do today is just sit. And I recognize, I know exactly what's going on in me. Over the last few months, we've been through some incredibly stressful things as a family. Me, as a, I've been through a lot of stressful things individually. Many of you know I'm bivocational. And business has been really good, but I've been through some pretty stressful things. And over the last, and, and here at Journey, literally for the last two and a half years, things have felt stressful. And I know we talked about Jesus saying we shouldn't worry. And I, just like you, do my best, and sometimes I still worry. And But just stressful things, and not necessarily things that I just dwelt on all the time but whenever you have stressful things in your life you just feel them i mean you there's no, it's kind of hard to describe it's like a weight on your chest or on your shoulders you just kind of feel it you know we talked about whenever life gets stressful how our field of vision gets really small and we can only see just a little bit whereas when we kind of release that the whole world opens up to us and over the last couple of weeks a lot of the things that that I've been somewhat worrying about over these last few months just resolved themselves. And, and like in the very best way they could possibly have resolved themselves. I, I told Deidre, I said, I told her Friday, because rec- it started on Friday, I said, I, something's going on in me, and I feel it's that time when stress releases, and then you just kind of, y'all know how that is. I mean, I hope you do. So I woke up this morning, and it's been kind of the culmination of that. And yet, in those moments, can I just tell you how thankful I am the only one I have to sit? Just to see God work in stressful moments. And there are some stressful moments I've shared with you, and I'm not going to go back over again this morning. They were still dealing with, do not assume that means, oh, God loves Mark so much, they have no stress. No, we still have stressful things going on within our lives, and yet... I recognize in the release of that those things, God is so good. But you know, sometimes some of the things over the last couple of years have they did not release in a good way. There's real loss, real pain and hurt, a lot of real sacrifice, and a lot of things that were against my will. If I could have willed them to be different, I would have, and they didn't resolve. Not positively. And in those moments, I'm just reminded God is so good. I think this passage, what Jesus is trying to say, is not this is a litmus test whether you get in and out of heaven. It's do you actually, are you actually a part of the kingdom or not? Are you experiencing the kingdom or not? Because I want you to keep in mind this passage is not like, all these great things are possible, but if you mess up, you're out. Out, I tell you. That is not what Jesus is doing here because that is not how Jesus talks anywhere else in the New Testament. But instead, he says, there's a way to look at people and to value them. And on those moments that you're tempted to look at someone and think you only exist for my consumption and I lust, and I don't really care about you or your story or your hopes or your dreams or, or what makes you happy or not. All I can think about is how you fill my needs. There's a way you can live, and you don't have to live that way. 
There's a way you can live and you can value each other. You can be fully valued and loved. Not just by God and not just by Jesus, but you can be fully valued and loved by another group of people who have also found that Jesus provides that type of life. There's a way you can experience that. If you find yourself in a marriage that is cold and it is dead, and you're ready to just give up and walk away, there is hope that that marriage can burn brightly again. But it means you've got to be focused on each other, and it means you've got to take care of each other, and it means you've got to be leaning against each other and recognizing that's a healthy tension, and you've got to be moving somewhere together. It can happen in the kingdom We don't give up on each other. But if we did give up on each other at one point, and if we did go through with the divorce, God is still gracious. and He still welcomes us. We go through and we we read about whenever we get angry and... um, you know, we hate when people are angry with us, but we don't necessarily feel real bad when we're angry with others. And yet there is a way to dissipate anger and to understand anger in which the natural conflict that comes within life can be resolved to a place where you are stronger um, as friends and as family than you were before whatever caused the anger ignited it. And forgiveness is possible. And you can totally screw up in your relationships and your friendships here at church and you will be forgiven for it. And that does not often happen outside these walls. And let's be honest, sometimes it doesn't happen inside these walls either. He says there's there's an aspect of the kingdom that is just so good. It's just so good. And I fully believe what he is saying here is not just toe the line or you're out. What he's saying here is you can come to church and you can read your Bible and you can serve and you can give a tithe check and you can go out every now and then and tell somebody they should be saved so they won't go to hell. You you could go do all of those things and not forgive and not release your anger and not rekindle a lost relationship. You can go do all of these things and still feel like you're all alone. And you can miss all of the benefits of the kingdom, which is you are a part of his family. So as we come to this, I do do not want to take away the power of the coming judgment that's coming because Scripture is very clear there is coming a time in which there is going to be a are you in or are you not. I, I do not want to say this is awesome, just exercise in which just... You know, doesn't really nothing matters. We we kind of live in a culture where nothing's supposed to matter. I don't want to approach this as if nothing matters. But at the same time, there's a part of the kingdom that either you're living in it or you're not. You can say you're living in it, just like I can say I'm. I, you know, I, I'm living in a palace. Doesn't mean I'm living in a palace. I can say I've got a big community of friends that are really important to me. And I can tell other people that and still inside, no, I really don't. I really don't. And what Jesus could possibly be saying here is not just you're out. What he could possibly be saying here is all of these things about the kingdom are so good and they're so 
so pure, and they lead to a good life. All of these things are here, and these things are wonderful, but you can actually go to the temple every time the doors are open, and you can make sure you put your money in onto the tithe bucket, and you can show up when you're supposed to show up, And but you can miss all the beautiful things of the kingdom if you haven't found that this is the best way to do life. With the parable of the the pearl and the parable of the buried treasure. It can't just be a treasure. It has to be the thing. Because when you're angry, there are moments that you have to say, I am so mad. But I've done way worse to other people. And I've got to recognize I've got a, a log in my eye. And I'm, I'm mad at the splinter in yours, but I've got a log in mine. I need to forgive. And oh, but it, I want, just want to be so mad. And but, but that's not the kingdom. This is part of working out our salvation that Scripture talks about. And so there is a place in here that the kingdom is available. This is what I want to finish with. And Stephanie, I skipped like most of my notes here, but this is what I want to finish with. The kingdom. The kingdom is available to you. And with that kingdom comes a beautiful life. But that life does have perils, and there are people that are going to accept you because you're a part of the kingdom. That should be what the kingdom does. But there are going to be a group of people that are going to reject you because of the kingdom, and it is not going to feel good. And so if this is a treasure amongst all your other treasures, you'll probably miss a good part of what this is all about in the moments when tensions release in a positive way, and you go, God, thank you. In those moments when they don't release or they don't have a positive outcome, and you say, God, you're still good. And that flood of God being there with you is just, you cannot replace it with anything else. It is this beautiful picture of living life in a way that makes a difference in the world. But if the rest of the world rejects it, you will be in a community with other people who are living in that world too. The kingdom is here for those who have a heart for it. And I phrase it that way because apparently the group of people he's talking to, they had work that they did for it and they used words that they talked about it, but still something was missing and the thing that was missing was that they did not have a heart for it. So when we come together, we don't just come together because we're supposed to come together. We don't just show up on Sundays because, you know what, we better show up on Sundays because God's going to have our attendance on a form when we get up to heaven. And if we don't have enough check boxes, we're not getting in. No, we do it because uh, some of us have had a rough week. And life's not going well. And we need some help. And sometimes that help's going to be from somebody up here with a microphone on, but a whole lot of other times it's going to be because of the little conversation you had in the corner waiting on coffee or that you went out to lunch after or that you walked up to and, and somebody said, hey, listen, I, just, I, I haven't been praying for you about this thing that you, that's been going on in, in your life. Just, I, I'm just praying for you and I want you to know I'm here for you. And I'm telling you, that is the kingdom. 
It's not just heaven one day. The kingdom is here for now. Jesus was announcing to them, like, the kingdom is here. It's not just something you wait for. It's here if you want it. But if you don't have a heart for it, no matter what you do, you'll still miss it. You'll hold on to anger. You look at people as objects to consume, and it doesn't have that doesn't have to be sexual. I, I can want to consume you socially. I can want to consume you as in you only exist to give me what I need. Like I, I need you to to always babysit for me, or I need you to give me money, or I need you to give me credibility with other people. You're just a means to an end for me. Like that, you can't live in the kingdom and live that way. And it doesn't matter how many times you go to church, if you look at the people that are sitting next to you through the lens of you're only here because I'm the main story in this story, you're a supporting actor to add to my story, if you look at other people like that, you will miss the kingdom. And it's not Jesus getting mad at you with the baseball bat saying, you know what, I can't believe you thought that, and he's going to hit you with the baseball bat. It's just the basic reality. We miss the very thing that Jesus is saying is available to us. And we're blind to it ourselves. As we come when we study Scripture, we read Scripture only because we're supposed to, and there's nothing in it that makes us alive, makes us wake up, makes us go, God is so good. It makes life make more sense. And scripture becomes a burden and not a joy. Same way with prayer. We only pray because we're supposed to, and we never have that heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching moment in which we say something to God like, God, you promised... And you have not kept your promise to me. I pray those prayers. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not proud of it. I'm not suggesting you need to hold God accountable as if like he's accountable to us. But I have discovered in my life, if you are going to live within this kingdom, there are going to be stresses that are going to come in which you need to go to God and you need to be honest. And God welcomes our honesty. Because if I can't be honest with God in my lowest moments, how can I possibly be with Him in my highest? Many times we believe this false narrative, maybe from this very passage of the Sermon on the Mount, that says you can't ever doubt, can't ever have questions. Well, we see that throughout the New and the Old Testaments. And we're going to see that when we go through Genesis. People do have doubts, and it's okay. People do question, and it's preferable. Questioning is preferable to not questioning. Doubting is preferable to never wondering. If it's real, at times you're going to doubt. If it's real, at times you're going to question. A lot of times we're not prepared for those questions, and so we try to shut them down and say, well, you just shouldn't doubt and you should have faith. And I just think God wants more for us than that. So as you go through and you read this Sermon on the Mount, I I think what he's doing as he's wrapping this up is he's not just all of a sudden shifting hard to saying, you're out and you're in and you messed up and you said a bad word or you didn't go to church enough or you didn't pray the right way or you didn't read enough Bible so you're just not good enough to get into my good heaven. Gosh, what a terrible way to view all the rest of the ministry of Jesus if we take this passage and we sum it all up in that way. But he is absolutely warning us that one of the perils of living life within this earth is that we can go through all of the motions and our hearts 
will not be in it, and if our hearts are not in it, we will miss it all. Because while I like to hear myself speak, you listening to me speak isn't going to change anything in your life. The thing we're talking about, if it's not real, it's nothing I'm going to say is going to do anything different in your life. It doesn't matter how good our songs are. This isn't real. They're not going to do anything for you. Jesus is saying, if you believe this is real, if you know this is real, if you're, if you're living this out, if your heart is in it, if this is a treasure you want, and you want, to, you want to know God, and you want to love others, and you want to live a way that is good, it's available to you. But you can't fake it. And I have found um, most people know whether they're faking it or not. Most people know if they're faking it or not. You know inside if this is really what you're about or not, or if this is just something you do. I find many times, just like Paul, people who who really want this, and they really see how valuable it is, and that it is very real and very serious to them, will question their faith all the time. I'm just not sure. And I'm not sure that I'm good enough, and I'm not sure I've done a good enough job, and I'm not sure I've loved enough, and I'm not sure I've, I've made the right choices. And I just... I, I found that Many times the people who take this the most seriously are the first ones to ask those questions, just like Paul did. And if that's you, welcome to the club. Or maybe I should say, that sounds terrible. Maybe I should say, welcome to the kingdom. Come in and be part of this kingdom. You belong with us. You belong with each other. And you're going to screw up just like Peter screwed up. And you're going to make wrong choices just like Abraham made wrong choices. And you're going to do things and say things that you're absolutely sure about. And then you're going to have to change your mind. And you're still one of us. And you're going to make me really mad. Probably not as mad as I'm going to make you though. But I'm going to forgive you and I hope you will forgive me. Because we're in this kingdom together. And God's graciousness to the woman at the well, God's graciousness to the woman caught in adultery, God's graciousness to Peter when Peter denied him three times, God's graciousness is for you too. Well, let's pray. We have one more song to do next week. We're going to close this out, and Jesus is going to do one more little pivot for reframing. And, uh, and then the following week, we're going to kick off um, the rest of Genesis. Father, you are so good. And I, in this moment, am so thankful for the ways that you have heard our prayers in our own family and in my own life over these last few weeks. And I am thankful for you, for your faithfulness and your grace. And while... The things that troubled me and the scale of world events is so minor and insignificant, yet I believe you made them a matter of your own interest. Thank you. I know I'm not the only one in this room that feels that you you were walking along with them in their life just step in step.
and I know I'm not the only one that echoes the same prayer of thanks. And God, there are some things that have happened. And they went away. I didn't want them to go. And I am still a mess over them. I asked you over and over to do something different and to come out, give us a different outcome, and it didn't happen. Oh God, I am thankful that you are a good God and I can trust you when the things I want to work out don't work out. I'm thankful for our community that we can love each other and support each other and help each other. I thank you for forgiveness when we make mistakes. I thank you for mercy when we deserve judgment. I thank you for love when we live lives that are probably deserving of loneliness instead. Thank you for intervening and for changing us. And and Father, for those that are in this room, for those who are praying for something to go away and it's not going that way, oh, your goodness, I pray they would still see it. And for those who their stresses have resolved positively, I pray they wouldn't just move on in life, but would see how good you are and that you've been at work in their lives. That you care about every minuscule moment and care within their lives. Even if you don't answer every prayer the way we wish you would. And Father, I thank you that This life, this kingdom that we're a part of is not just a fairy tale. It's not just make-believe. There are real tangible moments where we, we see it, we feel it, we experience it. And I thank you that you've you're allowing us to experience that for now and for all eternity. So as we sing in these last few moments a song of praise to you, we recognize you are good. Help us to show the world you are the pearl of great price. You are a treasure buried in the field. And we, you are so good if we have to get rid of everything else just to be able to have that thing. Oh, we have gained the world. Father, let us see each other as members of the kingdom. We are one family. We are not just coming to do church. There's something more going on here. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.